Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. We are AM860, The AM. The, <coughs> wait, let me start over. AM860TheAnswer.com. That's AM860TheAnswer.com. I'm your international Dr. Bill, so you can reach me on the website anywhere in the world. Just Google that and click Listen Live 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time here in the United States in sunny Florida and beautiful St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay area. All right. Well, we returned from the Orient. We had our big trip to China and to South Korea, visited with the family in South Korea, saw the in-laws. And in China. got a ways to go yet that's for sure a curious thing i i was uh in cabs of course with a number of cabbies and when they found out i was a doctor they wanted to wanted me to feel their pulse to see if they were okay so i'm taking from that that there's still limited health care available to the average working chinese person although i'm sure it's getting better but uh, I, th- I thought it was fascinating that they they felt that I could diagnose them by just feeling their pulse and touching them. And I even had one family ask me to touch their child because I was a doctor and I guess a little bit of the shaman metaphysical power was imparted to that child forever. So it was fun and interesting. Enjoyed that. But now we're back home. Uh, and, of course, it's always a feat to get back into the United States unless you have one of the global entry cards. We returned uh, I think it was Friday night late that we came in. We got back about. Russian influence in the area. Flew into Atlanta and then caught the red eye from Atlanta back to Tampa. In Atlanta, we stood in the line to re-enter the United States for two hours. Two hours. And it was just the worst nightmare you could imagine after being on a plane for 12 hours and having your sleep patterns all turned around. So we're in this two-hour line to get back into the country. Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson Airport. Highly inefficient system. Too few kiosks. Now, if you have not re-entered the country or you're doing it for the first time in a while, there are now kiosks at major airports where you put your passport picture into the machine and it will read it it will take your picture it will ask you questions for customs like are you bringing back any food uh do you have any goods that you've purchased overseas more worth more than 500 or a thousand dollars or whatever the limit is so on and so forth and then you get a card and you take that to the customs agent and the lines just winded and winded and winded, and they they didn't have enough kiosk, and then they were not used efficiently. So we were 
herded in in groups to these kiosks. And I would say there were maybe, what, 40, 50 kiosks. And so it was 50 at a time, and then they'd hold up traffic to let another group that was in another area go through and back and forth. And, of course, highly inefficient and uh, did upset me. I'll say that. I was upset. Too few kiosks. The customs agents were very cursory. When you finally talked to an official from the Customs and Immigration Service, he said, do you bring in, are you bringing in any food or beverages or plants or animals? No. Okay, bye. That's it. So it was, uh, it was two hours to get to a guy who said, come on in. The airport workers appeared to be put out to a certain extent by the throng of returning U.S. citizens. And this also includes green card holders. And I believe there's some reciprocity under certain programs with Canadians. Now, many of the folks working in the airport had heavy accents that were difficult to understand, and there were a number of Koreans who were coming into the country from our flight because it was a flight from Incheon, South Korea, to the United States, and it was on Korean airlines. So people were coming in for school or visits or whatever, and they couldn't understand the workers who were trying to direct them. I had trouble understanding them, to tell you the truth. Some of the accents were so heavy. Uh, so there was some confusion among the Korean travelers as they were obviously unable to understand what was being said. My wife, who is Korean, jumped in and helped out with a few people, telling them to go this way for getting off in Atlanta. to tell you the truth at how easily we were herded into these long lines with very few grumblings and no protests. I mean, you could hear people on their cell phones saying, I'm stuck in the line from hell and that sort of thing. It was really kind of an Orwellian scene. And, you know, it makes you wonder how difficult would it be to herd a bunch of us into concentration camps or into internment or labor camps. Hopefully we'll fight back. The kiosk handles the reentry process and, as I said, ask you the questions and you have to show your passport to the kiosk and it scans it and takes your picture, make sure it matches so it's face recognition. This is a great argument for obtaining your global reentry card, which you can get from the uh, Immunization Service, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, the website is easy to navigate. You do have to fill out some things and give your passport number, and then you have to go for a face-to-face -face interview. They want your fingerprints. They want your picture. They want all your historical data, age, date of birth, so on and so forth. And this allows expedited clearance back into the country. This is for low-risk travelers. That is, people who are not considered a terrorist threat. And these kiosks are available at many of the larger airports. And there are about three or four of them at Hartsfield International. And I saw a handful of people using them. My bad for not getting the card. It costs about 100 bucks now. There's also uh, a program that they have which allows you to quickly get through the customs, uh, not the customs, but the... Uh, 
the security check at the airport so you can get what's called a Mushroomed. Okay, so you don't have to take your shoes or your belt off. And this is for people who are also pre-approved in the same process. You have to go for an interview, give your fingerprints, they check your background, date of birth, all that. Now, that's a little bit different from global entry. TSA pre-check gets you through the check-in line quicker, through the security portion of the check-in. So when you put your gear into the x-ray machine you don't have to take so many things out when you walk through the metal detector you don't have to take everything off and uh, it's it's a, a good thing which we have and it expedites at most airports the process so they're two different things tsa pre-check and global entry and these are part of the trusted traveler programs that the department of homeland security is offering there's also the Nexus program in the century, and I believe these are for U.S. and Canadian citizens traveling back and forth. And then I think that the Century program is for the truck drivers who are driving between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. The TSA pre-check, I believe, is about $85 to get that, and that's a five-year membership and the global entry is $100, and that's a five-year membership. To skip that line for two hours, it's well worth it, guys. So that's, that's my insight into reentering the United States. I got to tell you a, a, a cute story. We were coming back from the Turks and Caicos medical meeting down there years ago, came into the country, got into the line, got up to the counter. This was before we had the kiosk. And the agent says, uh, sir, I'll need you to go over to that desk. I went over to this desk, and another uh, border agent was looking at the computer, and he said, Dr. Handelman, I said, yes, sir. He said, do you know there's an outstanding warrant for your arrest? I said, what? <laughs> an outstanding warrant for my arrest? you got to be kidding. For what? And he's reading. He says, barking dog? Oh, my God. So we... We had two dogs. We've lost them recently. My wife's still mourning that. But we had a male. His name was Ty, standard poodle, and he barked and barked and barked. And when we... Interesting young lady. She's in college. ...come out and sit and wait, and if he heard any barking dogs, uh, he would... Uh, proceed and so my wife was at home and he came and knocked on the door and gave her what she thought was a warning it was not a warning it was a ticket for a barking dog I didn't appear in court of course it was in my name and so I was considered an outlaw because I didn't go pay the fine for the barking dog or appear in court which I didn't know about <laughs> I didn't have any idea so at any rate, here's this outstanding warrant. Well, that cost me uh, a couple of grand to get an attorney to get that all straightened out. Oh, my goodness. That's a, a strange feeling to be pulled out of the line as you're coming back into the United States and told that there's an outstanding warrant for you. Fortunately, the customs agent was a reasonable guy, and he said, this doesn't sound like a big deal. I said, it shouldn't be. I mean, you know, apparently I didn't pay the ticket for the 
the barking dog. And he said, well, take care of it, Doc. That's what you need to do. And that's what I did. So we have these programs that you can get into the country and get out of the country or get out of the city if you're at the airport quickly and easily. And I would advise getting them both. I'm going to get the global entry program so I don't have to stand in these long lines since we do travel to Canada and the Caribbean and occasionally uh, to other continents. If you're not going to travel outside of the country, then it's not worth getting the global uh, passport. But uh, the pre-check, if you're going to fly anywhere in the United States or Canada, I would suggest you get the pre-check as you can get through the lines at major airports when you're getting onto the plane much quicker. So that's that. Now, let's talk about the problems that occur when you travel by jet across multiple time zones. There's this thing called jet lag, which most people have heard about, and it's a dyssynchronous syndrome where our circadian rhythms are out of whack. What are our circadian rhythms? Those are the rhythms that we have innately in our brain that tell us when to go to sleep, when to wake up, uh, when to eat, so on and so forth. Uh, it also has to do with releasing certain hormones at certain times during the day. For instance, cortisone, cortisol, which is a necessary hormone in our body, is released, and it's released in the mornings, early morning, and it's triggered by sleep cycles and daylight. And so this is something that is important to our body. We have to have cortisol a certain amount or we don't live. We can't make it. President Kennedy had a syndrome where he lacked the ability to make his own cortisol, so he had to take medication. And we do have people who have problems like this from many strokes in the part of the brain that has to do with release of hormones as well as uh, tumors in certain parts of the brain that have to do with the hormonal release so this is a real phenomenon, and the condition of jet lag can last for several days, and it can take several days to adjust, and the rule of thumb is one day per each hour of time zone that you pass. Now, if you're just going a few time zones, it's not going to be a big deal, but once you get up to about six time zones, seven time zones, it starts to take its toll a little bit, and anybody who's traveled across multiple time zones knows that feeling of not being able to get regulated and not knowing when to sleep and when to wake up. Jet lag is another term that we use for it. Is this real? Absolutely. The brain releases not only hormones that affect the whole body, but hormones within the brain itself like melatonin that help us with our wake and sleep cycles. And there are nuclei nucleus being connection points between nerves in the brain and the body that deal specifically with this wake-sleep circadian cycle that we have. Now, it doesn't matter if you're going north-south and staying in the same time zone. So if you're flying from New York to Buenos Aires, which I think is in the same time zone or, or a similar time zone in South America, it's not going to affect you. You will be in the same synchronization of the sun cycle, the day cycles, the day-night cycles. So it's only when you're going east or west. And it's tougher if you're flying from 
west to east because you're going against the sun. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So as you can imagine, you're, you're losing even more synchronization because you're going against the sun as well as against time zones. From east to west, it's not as bad. So we're all turned around here at the house. And there are some things that you can do to alleviate jet lag. Now, you can get certain medications that help you release serotonin. They're sleeping agents, and you can get a prescription from your doctor. There may be some naturopathic or homeopathic remedies as well. Uh, I'm not up on that. But these are specific sleeping pills that stimulate the release of melatonin in the brain, and you can use that to help yourself get re-regulated. There's also exercising. Now, you, you have to do some heavy exercise to get yourself turned around in a hurry. But if you're the kind of person who likes to work out and jogs or rides a bicycle hard or uh, does any strenuous activity for extended periods of time, 30 to 60 minutes a day, then you can use that to help yourself get turned around quicker. Now, the professional athletes use special glasses that release light and the light is synchronized to certain timetables that have been worked out. And you can go online to find these. They're not hard to dig up. And you can put in where you're leaving from and what time and what date and where you're going to arrive at what time and what date. And it will give you a list of schedules for when to allow yourself to see daylight and when to go to sleep and, and have darkness. You can do a little bit of this as you're coming back if you uh, manage the lights in the airplane. And as a general rule, the window shades are all pulled down during these long flights because a lot of people are sleeping because they're out of sync. But if you use the day, uh, the uh, artificial lights that are in your seat and shine above you down onto your seat, then you can stimulate yourself and start re-regulating yourself from that. So there are these biological clocks that we have, circadian oscillators and homeostasis. Homeostasis means keeping all the systems at a consistent, balanced level. And the circadian system is located actually in one nucleus in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this is in the hypothalamus of the brain. The hypothalamus is part of the primitive brain that has to do with our basic rhythms, uh, our sense of cycles, sleeping and eating and defecating and so on and so forth, fear and uh, satiety when we feel full. So this area of the brain is very important with helping us regulate what we call autonomic or functions that we don't really have a lot of conscious control over. We can take some control over them by, as I was explaining above, manipulating our circadian rhythms through the use of light, through the use of melatonin, through the use of exercise. These internal clocks naturally are timed to the sun. And there are clocks in women that are timed to the moon, the menstrual cycle for one. So we're a, a master clock, and the hypothalamus, which is connected to the pituitary, which is a little dangling uh, 
hormone secreting part of the brain at the back of the eyes that the hypothalamus tells when to secrete hormones and when not to secrete hormones, that this is influenced and controlled by a number of processes, including our day-night rhythms. Now, the, the pituitary gland, most of what it releases are, are what we call pre-hormones. They're stimulating hormones, so there's a hormone that's released that will then stimulate our thyroid gland, which is a gland in our neck that releases thyroid hormones, which are necessary for life. And then there's a feedback mechanism so that when we've released enough thyroid hormone, the little pituitary gland in the brain will turn off because of a message coming from the part of the brain right above it that controls it. So there's a feedback mechanism and all these cycles and circadian rhythms and homeostasis and all these big words that mean basically if you travel in more than a certain number of time zones in a jet plane, you're going to have problems and you need to do certain things to make sure that you don't feel bad when you get to the other end of the, of the trip. It took us a few days to adjust when we were in China to the time zone, but it's even tougher when you're coming back east across the sun, as I said earlier. So the symptoms of jet lag are variable, and it depends on the amount of time zone alterations you've experienced, the time of day, individual biology, Sleep disturbance is one of the main things, and this is poor sleep upon arrival or sleep disruption, such as falling asleep during the day and waking up at night easily, trouble remaining asleep. It also can interfere with our thought processes and our mental functions, including poor performance, kind of like you're a little bit drunk mental task and concentration, the ability to perform mental task and to concentrate drops. And I was at the office yesterday. And I was really kind of confused about what I was doing, so I had to be very methodical about it. But I did get it done. It took me about three hours to do something that normally takes me about an hour. And finally got it up and running and I've deferred some of the programming and reprogramming to today because I felt like I was just too whacked out took a quick nap at the office for a couple hours and came home and we're here last night and we're watching a movie and then having something to eat and I'm thinking well it's supper time and the wife and I decided we'd try to fix her computer remotely from the house here we have uh, program that allows us to get right into her computer and I'm looking at the time on and date on the computer and we're having trouble with the Wi-Fi at the house and I said oh well, here's the problem the time and date are wrong we didn't reset it when we got back from the Orient and the wife says what are you talking about I said well this says 12:30 a.m. Sunday morning and this is Saturday she said, no, it isn't. <laughs> this is Sunday. It's 1230 a.m. We are still awake, wide awake. I said, oh, my God, I meant to take my melatonin medicine and hit the hay earlier to try and get my circadian rhythms back in cycle. And she says, well, dude, you're too late. I said, no, I'm not. But at any rate, I was surprised to find out and to realize that <laughs> I had the wrong day. I thought I was still on Saturday, and it was already Sunday. 
And I tell you, I went to sleep for five hours and then got up to prep for the show and uh, get the computers back up and running. And I tell you, it it just doesn't feel right. I'm, I'm sure Bill's wondering, what is up with this guy? Do I sound off, Bill, or am I hitting it pretty good today? Well, to be fair, it is a show about sleep, and you're making me very sleepy. <laughs> there you go. So everybody take a nap after the show. Other things that can, other problems that can arise include eating, when we eat, problems with digestion, changes in our frequency of moving our bowels and bladder, uh, reduced interest and enjoyment of food, and I experienced that. I didn't eat anything yesterday at all until 11 or 12 at night. And this is all part of the of the syndrome of jet lag, uh, the undoing of the circadian rhythms. There's something called travel fatigue, and there's general fatigue, disorientation, and headache caused by disruption in routines, or time spent in cramped spaces, like an airplane seat, with little chance to move around. I always get up and move around on the planes, even if it's just a couple hours flight. If it's an hour flight, I don't, but... If it's a couple-hour flight, especially during the day, I'm up and moving, walking back and forth. I go back to the to the uh, galley and ask the flight attendant for something to drink, uh, hit the head several times, try and stay active and moving. And that will help with the travel fatigue syndrome. Also, it will help decrease our ability to form clots in our legs, and it will help with maintaining our circadian rhythms as well. We won't be so blah when we get at the other end, and we won't feel like we're incapable of doing anything. So stay active if you're on the plane. I also double my aspirin intake when I'm going on a long flight to decrease the chance of getting a blood clot. When you sit in one position for a long period of time, especially if you're Elderly, or if you've had a bunch of babies and a lot of pressure on your pelvic veins, uh, if you've lost and gained a lot of weight or had heart failure or other conditions that predispose to blood clots in the legs, uh, it's a good idea to take an extra aspirin when you're traveling and make sure you get up and move around. That's one of the best ways to decrease the likelihood of having blood pooling in your veins and your legs where it can then clot. Blood needs to be moving and mixed and stirred so that clots are constantly being formed and broken down by the body. This is part of the normal process. Microscopic clots constantly form and are constantly being broken down. So you got to keep the blood moving and circulating, and that's why I get up and move a lot when I'm on the airplane. Even on the flight back from the Orient, I was up and about and doing things throughout the flight, pestering the flight attendants and walking around the cabins and checking on the wife, and she fell asleep, darn it. Usually I just pester her to death and tease her and hit her with pillows, and she yells and screams at me. But I find that kind of stimulating. One of our listeners who remains anonymous asks, what about pilots who frequently fly over several time zones? This is a real concern for the uh, airline pilots and the flight attendants, and again, you can go to any number of websites, including your airline companies, and they'll direct you to a calculator, and I believe I've got that somewhere here. I'll dig that up, and after the break, I'll let you know how this thing works, but the calculator, basically, you put in 
where your origination point is, what time you're leaving, the date where you're landing, what time you're landing, and the date of your landing. And it will give you basically a schedule for allowing yourself to be exposed to daylight and when to stop the exposure. And it's just a gradual way of changing your system to that new time zone by an hour or two every day. So that that is something that they use and that is of concern to the airline companies for their pilots. Same with our jet pilots in the military. So we have to do certain things to ensure that they will be awake and alert. And again, light is the strongest stimulant for relining a person's sleep-wake schedule. And careful control of exposure to and avoidance of bright light to the eyes can speed our adjustment to a new time zone. Again, the hormone melatonin is produced in dim light and darkness in humans, and it's eliminated by daylight, so we can actually manipulate our own melatonin levels by allowing bright light in or no bright light or no light in. Again, north-south travel doesn't matter unless you're crossing the pole, the uh, north or south pole, and going to a different hemisphere where you're 12 hours difference right away when you cross. So it's easier going east to west and harder west to east, and it takes approximately... You have to be alert and oriented and spot on all the time like medicine. you got to consider this when you're traveling. And my wife and my son don't consider these things the same way that I do, and they're amazed that I'm turned around quicker than they are and up and going. So yesterday... sleep and woke up around seven or eight at night. So she has had a harder time turning things around. When I come back, I'll give you a little bit more about the, the schedule that you can use when you're traveling over multiple time zones in order to keep yourself from getting too turned around. This is Dr. Bill. I'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Search and rescue efforts have ended for the seven sailors missing after a destroyer collided with a merchant ship in waters off Japan yesterday. A number of bodies have been recovered from damaged compartments aboard the USS Fitzgerald. The Navy won't say how many, pending notification of next of kin. Portugal has declared three days of national mourning as the forest fire death toll there reaches 62. London Mayor Sadiq Khan is attending a church service today near the ruined London high-rise apartment building where at least 58 people perished. The mayor and his wife have joined the congregation at St. Clement's Church near the Grenfell Tower. And authorities say about 20% of voters have cast ballots so far in the final round of parliamentary elections in France, down from previous votes amid concerns about low turnout in general 
across the republic. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. Writing a Christian book, you're doing an amazing thing, getting it all down on paper. But once you've got the manuscript, then what? Well, you can spend a year or more trying to find a publisher, or you can cut right to the chase. Make your book real with Zulon Press. Finding a publisher is time-consuming and uncertain. With Zulon Press, things are quick and definite. They specialize in one thing, helping Christian authors put their books in print. Zulon Press will publish your book. Zulon Press gets it into bookstores. Your book is on Amazon. Work with Zulon Press, and there's no question, you are a published author. If you're writing a Christian book, get your free publishing guide from Zulon Press. Just log on to ChristianPublishing.com. That's ChristianPublishing.com. Zulon Press, book publishing by Christians for Christians. Get your free publishing guide at ChristianPublishing.com. Zulon Press is a division of Salem Communications, the same people who bring you this nifty radio station. Being there matters, and your United States Navy protects and defends America on the world's oceans. Around the globe, around the clock, Navy ships, submarines, aircraft, and most importantly, tens of thousands of America's finest young men and women are ready to defend America. When piracy threatens global commerce, when disaster strikes, or when called upon by the Commander-in-Chief, your Navy is there. When it comes to protecting and defending America, being there matters, and America's Navy is already there. Today we'll have more glass and sunshine with a thunderstorm this afternoon and a high of 88. Shower thunderstorm in spots this evening. Otherwise, partly cloudy with a low of 76. Partly cloudy tomorrow with a shower thunderstorm around, high 86. Then Tuesday, a couple of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, high 88. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Gigi Getz for AM 860, The Answer. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, talking about jet lag and travel and problems encountered therein. And as I said, I would tell you a little bit more about the jet lag calculator. And you can Google this online, jet lag calculator. And I put in uh, the regimen for going from South Korea, Seoul, South Korea, to Tampa, Florida. 
And so the first day between 7 and 11, seek light, bright light, and then between 11 and 7 a.m., sleep. The next day, seek light between 8 a.m., I'm sorry, 8 p.m. and midnight, and then sleep between midnight and 8 a.m. And then Tuesday, 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., and then sleep ideal is 1 a.m. to 9 p.m., and so on and so forth, and you get yourself turned around over a seven-day period. So you can go to the jet lag calculator online, and you can punch in your days and your times and and your dates and your origin and destination points, and you can get yourself a little schedule set up, and you can readjust your sleep cycles more gently and easily and be less stressed and confused and out of whack. So that's how we did it, or at least that's how I did it. And my wife and my son, I don't think they uh, are going to follow that regimen. My son was up this morning asking me a million questions as if he had uh, if he had, had a couple of cups of coffee. That's not usually his, his biorhythm. He's a late teen, early adult, 20, 21-year-old, and so he tends to sleep late at night, early mornings, and sleep until 9, 10, 11, 12 noon. But no, he's up and awake and doing it, and now he's going to try and go lay down and take a quick nap, which will turn into an all-day affair, I'm sure. So that's the problem when you travel over great distances in a jet across multiple timelines as you get out of whack, get your body rhythm screwed up. And that's what I have to say on that topic. So that's enough medicine for one day. Now, I did have a chance to take a look at the shooting incident of our congressman, and it would appear that violence towards the right is increasing. And this is not new, though. The Communist Manifesto one of the problems with it is that it says the end justifies the means. And if you believe that, then violence in pursuit of what you consider to be social justice and helping the oppressed and the downtrodden is okay. And it's not an immorality. I'm not quite sure how people get to that point, but there are some who do. And this is similar to what we see with radical Islam, people feel that in order to perpetrate, maintain their existence and to spread their philosophy or theology, that anything goes. So shooting a a congressman is no big deal. Well, it is a big deal to me. Um, I certainly don't agree with that. And I think that the feeling of righteousness that comes with a strong emotional bent towards an ideology or religion or philosophy is often nonproductive. That's not to say that it always is. And I think there are certain emotions that are uh, induced by religion and religious beliefs and prayer and meditation, which are healthy but it can go too far and we can become too 
married to our ideals and ideas and feel that the only way to protect and promote those is through violence. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen violence against uh, congressmen, and there have certainly been a number of congressmen killed and injured over the uh, two-plus centuries that we've been a country. Uh, There were a number in the 19th century that were largely related to duels, and people were killed by the person they were dueling against. So we had Jonathan Culley, who was from Maine, killed by William Graves from Kentucky, and Spencer Pittis and Thomas Biddle went at it, and there are a few other duels in the 19th century. Now, there was a congressman named Edward Baker who was killed at the Battle of Ball's Bluff during the Civil War. There was a congressman, Cornelius Hamilton, from Ohio in 1867, and his insane son, his 18-year-old son, killed him. So there's a number of, of different reasons why people were killed who are in the U.S. Senate or were in the U.S. Senate. And there is no real rhyme or reason to a lot of this, especially when it's done in the name of, of ideologies. Recently, we saw Robert Kennedy in my lifetime in 1968. He was killed by Sirhan Sirhan, uh, apparently a Muslim who felt he was doing something on God's behalf. I think the guy was crazy, though. Leo Ryan from California, was visiting uh, Guyana to investigate the activities of the People's Temple group led by Jim Jones, and this was in the 1970s. Uh, Jim Jones and his followers all took Kool-Aid laced with cyanide, except for two or three, they all died there. And he went prior to their suicide, their mass suicide, and he was shot multiple times while boarding an airplane leaving Jonestown by some of Reverend Jim Jones' militants. Now, there was actually a plane that was shot down. Uh, You may remember this in 1983. A Korean airline flight was shot down by Russian MiGs because they thought that the airplane was violating the Soviet airspace. But Larry McDonald was from Georgia. He was a congressman who was on board, and he was very much anti-communist and anti-Russia. So there are people that have speculated that this was set up to murder him specifically. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Certainly makes for a good conspiracy theory. We've had multiple other attempts on congressmen from Charles Sumner, in 1856, all the way up to our recent fellow, Scalisi, Steve Scalisi, who was shot last week uh, by a gentleman professing left-wing beliefs and described by most people as a nice guy and friendly but very ardent about his politics. A few people called him a sourpuss. He had had run-ins with the police over the years. Uh, He had... think that he was ever prosecuted. Uh, The reason for shooting Scalise is that he was the majority whip in the House, or is still. He's alive, and apparently he's coming out of it. 
uh, had a gunshot wound through the pelvis, so he hit some vital organs, uh, a lot of blood vessels in the pelvis, so he had problems with bleeding, and it took a few days to control all of that. The fellow that shot him was James T. Hodgkinson, the third, Hodgkinson, H-O-D-G-K-I-N-S-O-N. And, of course, the question arises is, are these people who are contemplating and carrying out acts of violence against the other side of the political spectrum, are they being influenced by what's being said in the press and on TV? Are they being incited to violence by people like Kathy Griffith, who held up a a decapitated head of a fake, you know, a fake head, of course, covered in blood of Donald Trump and uh, Shakespeare in the park with Trump being killed. All of this has a bent to it that is not in keeping with what I would consider uh, civilized discussion and intercourse between peoples and parties of differing opinions. And I think that although this has always been in our society to a certain degree, I think we've seen another resurrection of it and in, 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 on mass, so to speak. The last time we saw this sort of violence was in the late 60s and 1970s, early 1970s, when the left wing, the Weather Underground, the college left wing group, and the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army and the Black Panthers and different politically active groups who were promoting leftist ideals and overthrow the government were carrying out acts of terror, blowing things up. A few people were killed here and there, precipitated a lot of anxiety in the nation. Uh, a big backlash, and of course, freedom of speech comes into play, and the Supreme Court had to take a look at all of that multiple times over and over, over the past two centuries. What right do we have to freedom of speech? Well, I don't think that we can uh, can call inciting violence and mayhem and riots freedom of speech, and I don't think that the Supreme Court has ever upheld that you can say what you want to incite a riot. That's just not the way it is. There's currently on the streets uh, people smashing storefronts, and I heard one left-wing commentator say if Trump gets rid of Mueller, the special counsel for investigating the quote-quote Russian interference in our election, then that's the time to start picking up bricks and throwing them through windows. I'm not quite sure how that helps, but uh, apparently it makes people who are of that bent feel better. We also have seen at colleges people considered not politically correct being blocked from speaking, even if what they were speaking about had nothing to do with politics. We see the left-wing groups that are calling Trump and the Republican administration oppressors and racist, which I, I don't see. I mean, I haven't seen him do anything that Hitler did. And there are people who are saying that they wouldn't know who to kill if they had Hitler and Trump in the room and had their choice of one or the other. I think that that's a very dangerous uh, um, line to take and to put out publicly. 
There was a woman named Heather McDonald who was physically blocked from an auditorium at Claremont McKenna College in Claremont, California. the complex relationship between law enforcement and minority communities. And she was among the first to theorize that anti-police protest in areas like Ferguson, Baltimore, Milwaukee, and elsewhere have facilitated an increase in urban crime. The so-called Ferguson effect is now a matter of uh, agreement by scientists, social scientists on the left and the right. So a group of students had blocked her from coming in physically, which, of course, is illegal. But, you know, what are you going to do? And then another group from Pomona College, part of the same school system, penned a letter to the Pomona president, David Oxtoby, affirming the, the protest at their sister institution, saying that this woman should not be allowed to speak because she is a fascist, a white supremacist, a war hawk, a transphobe, a queerphobe, a classist, and ignorant of interlocking systems of domination that produce the lethal conditions under which oppressed people are forced to live. And so my son is asking me this morning, because I'm reading this, and he's looking over my shoulder, what's that? And I explained a little bit to him, and he said, well, do you think there are oppressed people in the United States? I said, define oppression. So then we got into that debate. What is oppression? To me, oppression is when people are being forced to do things against their will, being taken advantage of uh, against their will, uh, being enslaved. Uh, there's injustice in the world when people are convicted of crimes that they did not commit. And so that discussion led from one thing to another, and he said, well, how do you resolve this? And I said, well, in the case of, for instance, someone who is wrongly convicted of a crime, and certainly there was that over the centuries, throughout history, even in the United States, the science wasn't there to be as precise as we are now, and we've seen several people released over the past 10, 15 years because of DNA evidence that was re-examined. Fortunately, the, the evidence had been saved, and there was enough DNA to show that this person was not the rapist or the killer. That was not his blood. And I think the technology is the salvation for a lot of our confusion and misunderstanding and the fix if there is a problem, if it's broken, the differences between those who are ruling, those who are the bosses, those who are the owners of the businesses, those who are the major stockholders, and those who work for the companies and work for the businesses and are the people who are subject to the laws that are made by our Congress or our states and enforced by our various jurisdictions with their police departments and their executive branches. So how do we write all of this and make sure everybody's on the same page and enjoying similar benefits. It's not 100%. I don't think it ever will be. Certainly we're making 
great strides towards that. I think that in our country and in a number of other countries, including South Korea, health care is essentially universally available. It may be more expensive here than it is in South Korea for the poor to get the kind of health care that the better off can get. But the essentials, the basic needs, the uh, emergency needs, the preventative health care is there for those who want it and pursue it and seek it. And even if you don't have uh, a lot of cash, you at least have the ability to get the basics, get your immunizations, get the generic medications, get on Medicaid if you're financially strapped. It's not that easy, but it can be done. Uh, and as with anything in life, you got to put out some effort to pursue and to obtain those things that will help keep you healthy and safe and secure. Fortunately for us, with all of our problems, there are solutions. I don't think that violence against the left or the right is the way to do it. Now, if we want to have a civil war, that's a different situation because it will be declared by two sides that are defined and will obey some rules of conflict and combat and warfare. And then people can be held accountable for crimes they commit after the wars are over. And that's part of the game. It's part of a football game. It's part of a tennis match. It's part of warfare. There are rules of engagement, and there are infractions that can and will be punished often after the fact. So, But I don't think that the indiscriminate or even discriminate, even well-planned uh, attacks against people on the left by the right or on the right by the left are doing anything other than just flaming the fire and uh, fanning the fire and inflaming more people to act out and do things that are, in my opinion, immoral and unnecessary. If you don't like what's going on, get out and vote, uh, run for office, uh, write a paper, publish, do all the things that the founding fathers did prior to actually engaging the British in, in a revolt and breaking away. So, and remember that that started in 1760 and we were not in the officially in the revolutionary war until 1775, 1776. So that was 15 years of trying to negotiate with the king and with parliament. So we have avenues and once we've exhausted them all, then organize and take it from there. Well, we're at the end of the road here for the morning. I hope that this was helpful in terms of traveling. And I know that Bill's more awake now that I explained all this to him. And I'm, next week I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I'll have a great topic for you. And I'll see you guys. I appreciate you being there, and it's good to be back home. Adios, amigo. It is a wonderful day in the neighborhood. It's a wonderful Father's Day in the neighborhood. And if you're a